NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The U.S. government says two Native American sisters are violating the law by grazing their horses without permits on federal land. But the Shoshone women say it's the feds who are trespassing. I'm not going to get a grazing permit from the Bureau of Land Management because this is not their land. This is Western Shoshone land. And it's not overgrazing issue, it's not horse issue, it's a land issue. Also, the U.S. military has a major program to use hybrid and other new technologies to save fuel for its tanks and trucks. But fuel economy isn't the only benefit. The technology will also allow us to gain the advantage of uh, being able to uh, run, let's say, on battery power, uh, which means that you can run uh, silently. Uh, That's good from a stealth capability. And war at the backyard bird feeder. That and more this week on Living on Earth, right after this. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and HeritageAfrica.com. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Okay, so you think you're paying through the nose to fill up your vehicle at the pump. Well, consider the bill for the U.S. military. The cost of moving fuel to a war theater can boost its price to about $10 per gallon. And if it has to be airlifted in, that price tag can reach $400 a gallon or more. And think about how much fuel the Army burns up. Just keeping the 3rd Infantry Division moving in Iraq, for example, takes about 1 million gallons of fuel every day. And at times, it's had to slow down its advance for fear of running out. Paul Scalney is the Deputy Director of the National Automotive Center of the U.S. Army. The center partners with the civilian car and truck industry to bring innovations to military vehicles. One goal is to reduce fuel consumption by improving efficiency. Uh, Mr. Scalney, aside from cost, what's the Army's interest in decreasing its fuel needs? There's always been a recognition that we had to be more fuel efficient, but now as we're taking a look at conflicts where we need to get quickly into where we are, we really need to be able to take uh, our vehicles and all of the support equipment that we need there very quickly, and it makes more sense not to have to take as much fuel if your vehicles are more fuel efficient. Plus, in, in battle, what you want to be able to do is sustain yourself for longer periods of time without refueling, uh, because then you can stay in the fight a lot longer. How much of what the Army has to haul around is fuel? Uh, in certain situations, 70% of the bulk tonnage that we would take to war would be fuel. Uh, if you're less fuel efficient, you certainly have to take more fuel in the battle, which means you have to uh, have a lot more of what we call a logistics tail. We have to take a lot more support equipment to be able to support the soldiers that are in the fight. What's the baseline here? What kind of mileage do the vehicles you're looking at get right now? I understand that a tank gets, what, a, a mile a gallon, a half a mile a gallon, something like that? It's uh, it's anywhere from a half mile to a mile a gallon. Uh, at least that's my understanding. And it depends on where you've run the vehicles. But, uh, for example, in a Humvee, it might be uh, anywhere from about 9 to 11 uh, miles per gallon. And then when you start looking at the bigger trucks, they certainly go down from there. You're working on a number of alternative fuel technologies there. I'd like you to explain to me the advantages of each of these. First, what about hybrid electric? We already see that in passenger cars. Yes, you do see that in passenger cars. And um, from the standpoint of the hybrid electric, you have the opportunity to both work on maybe having a uh, a smaller engine uh, because you're assisted from your battery standpoint. A hybrid electric solution also allows us to to give us better acceleration to be able to uh, generate power on board and uh, therefore not effectively have to bring some of the generator sets that we have to bring into the battlefield. 
with a hybrid electric, you can also be quiet. Yes. When you have the batteries and you've charged the batteries, uh, you're able to actually run silently. And that's very important in the military, particularly when it comes from a stealth standpoint. Now, what's the interest in the military in fuel cells? It, of course, they came from NASA to begin with in the space program. We are really taking a very close look at what fuel cells will do for us, certainly from a fuel efficiency standpoint, certainly from a clean power standpoint. Uh, the critical piece here for us is, is that we're able to look at fuel cells for soldier, for you know, soldier packs, so the small fuel cells, fuel cells that can be used as auxiliary power units on vehicles to generate the power to run some of your uh, hotel loads like your air conditioning or your heating or whatever it might be. Also from the standpoint of eventually be able to use the fuel cell as a full-up power plant in vehicle. We also know that fuel cells are a little bit further out in terms of its commercial application and the amount the fuel cell vehicles are going to be sold. But it pays us in the military to have to be very, very much in tune with what the industry is doing and to be on the leading edge of getting this technology into our systems. And what kinds of vehicles are you talking about putting these technologies into at this point? Really across the board. We have to be careful about how we do them, but we're talking about putting these technologies into trucks, our tactical trucks, as well as into our combat fleet. How soon might we see this? Um, if you were to look on uh, TV next week, you won't be seeing the, the hybrid solutions or the fuel cell solutions out in a battlefield. In the case of hybrid electric, one of the programs that we are working is a hybrid electric Humvee. That potentially is going to be sitting out in the field in the 2006-2007 time frame. Um, as we take a look at our objective force and our future combat systems of systems, you're going to be looking at that a little bit after that. So uh, the military brought us uh, the microchip and Velcro and garage door openers and everything like that. How much of a driver for civilian technologies, civilian cars and trucks, will the work of the National Automotive Center be, do you think? Well, what happens at the very beginning is the military may be an early adopter of some of this technology. Because for us, a return on investment is not maybe just based on, uh, let's say, uh, consumer price and the dollars that would come in in terms of profits from an industry partner. So what we may do is we may be an early adopter of these technologies, but industry is working right along with us to obviously incorporate these or integrate them into commercial products. Uh, we just may be able to push the technology a little bit faster, and in the long run, this technology is going to get into the vehicles uh, that we drive as consumers and fleet owners drive in terms of truck fleet owners. Paul Scalney is the Deputy Director of the National Automotive Center of the United States Army. Thanks for filling us in, Paul. Thank you. These days, if you're thinking solar, you might want to think New Jersey. The Garden State is right behind California when it comes to promoting solar power. This isn't the first time New Jersey has been at the forefront of innovation when it comes to energy. After all, it was there that Thomas Edison first envisioned what would become the electrical power grid. Today, New Jersey is transforming the energy market once again, this time with a program that gives businesses and homeowners generous rebates to help them go solar. Brian Zumhagen reports. All the homes in this neighborhood are built sort of out of the same plan. You look at each one, you'll see it's... Robert Aresti lives in Princeton, New Jersey, in one of the many cookie-cutter-style houses built for GIs coming back from World War II. Over the years, people in the neighborhood have made various changes to their homes, but while most have been content to add a room or a sun porch, Robert Aresti has turned his house into a model of solar energy efficiency. This is the active solar domestic hot water system. It's placed behind the glass on the front of the house, so it's not even visible from the street. 
As he walks through his house, Oresti points out how the solar heating system works. The sunlight comes in through large windows downstairs, where a brick floor creates a convection current that sends warm air upstairs. In the attic, Oresti has insulated the roof with a special paint that inhibits infrared rays from coming in during the summer. That keeps air conditioning costs down. Oresti actually invented that paint, and he went on to become the president of Solar Energy Corporation, the world's leading manufacturer of the coatings, which are also used to make solar panels absorb sunlight. Robert Oresti isn't alone in his commitment to solar power. State governments have become increasingly interested in promoting renewable energy during the past decade. That's because of the deregulation of the energy market, says Tom Lydon, vice president of Powerlight Corporation, which installs photovoltaic solar panel systems all over the country. What's happened、um, over the last you know, 10 years or so with deregulation, the states have been forced to think about the issue, and you know how do they promote clean energy? How do they、uh, expand their distribution, and how do they meet the demand of new electricity? And renewable energy is a practical, viable, cost-effective way to do it, if the proper policy is in place. Lydon says that after California, New Jersey has been the leader among states when it comes to clean energy. The administration of Governor James McGreevy has made a commitment to get 12% of state government-consumed power from renewable sources. It's all part of New Jersey's one billion dollar clean energy program, a collaboration between regulators and the state's major utilities. Dale Brick is from the Natural Resources Defense Council, the environmental advocacy group that helped New Jersey officials design the program. Brick says the Garden State's efforts stand in stark contrast to the environmental policies of the Bush administration. New Jersey came out a couple of years ago with a commitment to meet or beat the Kyoto Protocol commitments to reduce emissions within the state. So they're going to reduce their statewide emissions of greenhouse gases by. Uh, to three and a half percent below 1990 levels by 2005, and a large part of the way that they're doing that is by promoting clean investment in clean energy. New Jersey officials have decided to emphasize solar energy rather than wind power, which is only in abundance along the Jersey Shore. Solar power, on the other hand, is plentiful in the state, especially during the summer, and that's when residents and businesses are overwhelming the power grid with their air conditioners, says Gene Fox, president of New Jersey's Board of Public Utilities. In July and August, our peak demand is high. That's when the dirty energy-generating、uh, facilities will come on board the backup plants. We still have air quality problems in New Jersey, so it really does help also with their air quality, which is important to the residents. For advocates like Gene Fox, it's not hard to convince residents and business owners about the long-term benefits of solar. The problem is the upfront costs of buying and installing solar electric systems. A homeowner can expect to pay up to twenty-five thousand dollars for photovoltaic panels and the other equipment necessary to convert sunlight into electric current. After looking at California's programs, New Jersey officials decided that the best way to get people to go solar is to give them rebates to help them pay the startup costs. Under the clean energy program, homeowners who install new photovoltaic systems can recover up to 70% of the cost from the state. That's significantly higher than California's 50% rebate cap. Dale Brick from the NRDC says the goal of New Jersey's incentive program is to transform the marketplace 
to make it easier for customers to invest in clean energy technology. Right now, I can't just walk into a Home Depot and buy a solar panel, have it put on my roof on the weekend by trained installers, and have a financing package all set up for me so that I just sign on the dotted line and I'm paying uh, a monthly fee that's uh, you know maybe a little more comparable to my electric bill. If solar systems become more popular, says Brick, more businesses will be encouraged to offer the technology to consumers. State officials hope that will bring prices down so that they can phase out the rebates within eight years. So far, the Garden State seems well on the way to meeting its goals. In a year and a half, New Jersey is committed to producing more megawatts of solar capacity than California did during the first two years of its program. For Living on Earth, I'm Brian Zumhagen in New Jersey. Coming up, keeping nuclear materials out of the hands of terrorists. First, this environmental health note from Diane Toomey. Thanks to a 1990 repatriation law, Native American tribes can now reclaim museum items that rightfully belong to them. But it turns out these objects might present a health hazard. Museums have routinely used chemicals to protect their collections from pest damage. In the past, these pesticides have included everything from arsenic and mercury salts to DDT. Researchers recently examined some Native American artifacts for these residues. The items in the study included ceremonial eagle feathers, a deer hoof necklace, and leather headbands, all property of the Hoopa tribe of Northern California. The artifacts were taken from the Hoopa in 1904 and eventually made their way to Harvard's Peabody Museum. When a Hoopa representative retrieved the objects a few years ago, Peabody officials told him to wear gloves and a mask when handling them. That warning prompted him to obtain a chemical analysis. Researchers took a number of samples from 17 items and found that mercury, DDT, and naphthalene, the main ingredient in mothballs, showed up in many of them. But the actual risk posed by handling repatriated items is unknown, since historically museums kept poor records on pesticide use, and studies such as this one are rare. That's this week's Health Update. I'm Diane Toomey. And you're listening to Living on Earth. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It lives. It breathes. It likes cheese. And it's patent number 4,736,866. Fifteen years ago this week, the United States government issued the first patent on a living animal. The invention? A mouse, genetically engineered to be susceptible to cancer. Philip Leader of Harvard and Timothy Stewart of the University of California obtained the patent. They named it the Oncomouse, after the Latin word for tumor. To create the Oncomouse, the scientists altered a gene that controls cell growth. This gene, a trigger for cancer, was injected into a fertilized mouse egg, and the egg was implanted into a female mouse. All the resulting offspring contain the mutant DNA. The Oncomouse was designed to help us understand the causes of human cancer and to test new treatments for the disease. The mouse and its patent generated intense controversy. Some said a living being should never be considered an invention. Others argued that the patent was unfair because it was so broad. It included not just the Onco mouse, but all of its descendants and any other animal created in the same way. Although Harvard University holds the patent, they agreed to give DuPont exclusive marketing rights. That company now sells Onco mice and receives royalties from all products derived from them. Fifteen years on, the controversy continues. Many hail the Oncomouse as a way of developing new cancer therapies. But some say it just makes those therapies more expensive. 
And for this week, that's the Living on Earth Almanac. Weapons of Mass Destruction We hear that phrase perhaps too often these days to suit our sense of security. Journalist Martin Schramm is the author of a new book on the topic. It's called Avoiding Armageddon, Our Future, Our Choice. And it's being published in conjunction with an upcoming companion PBS series. In his book, Marty Schramm explores the specter of biological, chemical, and nuclear attacks and talks with some of the people most closely associated with the security and manufacture of these materials. Marty Schramm joins me now to talk about his book, Welcome to Living on Earth. Glad to be here with you. Now, part of your series in your book is devoted to the security, or rather the lack of security, in those facilities that house weapons of mass destruction. And to get us into this subject, I'd like to talk about Leonid Smirnov, who is, as you describe, a rather ordinary-looking man. You also write that he's the International Atomic Energy Agency's worst nightmare. Who is this man? Well, he's basically a bean counter. He would weigh and measure the uh, resources at the facility where he worked. The resources happened to be nuclear material, highly enriched uranium. And what he figured out was that uh, there was a margin of error of 3% in the accounting that they had in order to weigh and measure what they had. Needing money, being very underpaid, as are so many people in this entire industry, unfortunately, in Russia, he decided that what he was going to do was steal just a little bit at a time, and he siphoned it off, always within the margin of error. So the books always showed nothing was missing. He wound up accumulating quite a stash. He kept it in a lead-lined container on the balcony of his fourth-floor apartment overlooking a playground for kids. Now, that's why the uh, nuclear inspectors, the same guys who used to go to Baghdad, uh, said he's our worst nightmare because we don't know that anything's missing and he's taking it. In the end, uh, while he got all this uh, uranium, he wasn't able to sell it. Well, that's exactly right. It turned out that the local police found the loot and and he did a couple of years for his crime. But the bottom line is uh, there were... Uh, 174 cases of uh, weapons-grade material that was taken uh, of highly enriched uranium, 16 especially. And of all of the cases, the records back at the Institute showed nothing was missing when the authorities went to return the discovered material to the Institute. And that's the danger we face. I mean, here we are now in an era of terrorism. And Osama bin Laden has said, obtaining weapons of mass destruction is our duty. It's a great concern, and that's why we're in a race, a race against Osama and the terrorists and a race against time to secure the weapons before they fall into the wrong hands. Aside from uh, Russia, what kind of risk do we run from countries like uh, Pakistan, uh, South Africa, uh, North Korea for proliferation of nuclear materials into what people would refer to as terrorists? Let's take South Africa first because it's the one example of of a country that uh, developed its own nuclear program and then decided to renounce the program. And if we're ever going to try to get these weapons closer to zero, countries have to uh, take a look at what South Africa did and decide if it's for them. Now, they had their own reason. De Klerk's outgoing government realized that they were going to be turning the government over to the uh, black majority of the population and uh, that may have been an incentive for them to decide that this is the time to uh, get rid of the nuclear program. Nelson Mandela, to his credit, 
decided we're not going to restart the program. And so South Africa has earned a unique place in the history books. Pakistan? Pakistan is it's an area that I fear greatly. And uh, as we're talking, while uh, the war in Iraq seems to be won, Pakistan could be the price that we wind up paying. My concern and my biggest concern, and I happen to know it's a concern of many of the top intelligence people in the, in the United States here in Washington, is that uh, Musharraf may be overthrown. It's very possible that pressure will build. A more radical, fundamentalist uh, military regime could come in with a general who is uh, closer aligned with the Taliban sympathies. And uh, when that happens, they'll have the Islamic bomb. Pakistan has the bomb now. They're a nuclear nation. That's frightening. And North Korea? North Korea is an area that I'm very worried about. Uh, top officials in Washington will tell you that they are too, even though the Bush administration, they've kept their concerns un understated. The problem, though, is far from understated. Why would an impoverished country that cannot feed its own people set out to develop one, two, and then as many nuclear weapons as they can possibly develop. Certainly not to put them on a shelf and just leave them there. That's not cost-effective. Not even to use them, because that probably wouldn't be cost-effective either. To blackmail the West into giving them aid and uh, of, of a whole variety of oil, energy, food, and so on, probably. But here's another thought. Maybe to sell it to terrorists. It's a real concern, and the entire world has to face up to it. I guess we can't talk about a topic called avoiding Armageddon without talking about the possible solutions. Uh, you propose several solutions to the problem of terrorism and chemical, biological, nuclear warfare in a section of your book called uh, Toward a Global Marshall Plan. Could you explain what this means and why this could work? Uh, the United Nations has made a, a significant start, and uh, it involves the developed nations of the world contributing to an overall plan to uh, develop aid to the undeveloped, underdeveloped parts of the world. The theory behind it is really something that goes to the heart of, uh, of a war on terror. It's not so much that poverty breeds terrorists. Osama bin Laden was a rich man. That's not it. But what causes millions of people to feel that they want to harbor terrorists, to shield them, to protect them, to, to not say, hey, he's right over here, you can come get him. The answer to that, I believe, and so many experts in the world now believe, is a despair and a hopelessness that people feel. The question of, uh, of a global Marshall Plan really comes down to the world's responsibility to see to it that all the parts of the world, all the segments of the world, are sharing in the globalization, sharing in the prosperity that uh, people can see every time they uh, sign on on the Internet and see what... So much of the world has, and if they don't have it, they feel the despair and the hopelessness. They're vulnerable to demagogues such as Osama bin Laden and so many others. That's a concern. Now, which nuclear facilities and stockpiles do we need to keep a particularly careful eye on, taking into account the level of technology and the surrounding political situation and accessibility? There are more than 100 research reactors in facilities and universities uh, in more than 40 countries. We're talking about third world, second world, and first world. And we're talking about nuclear reactors that have weapons-grade material in them that are secured, sometimes not at all, and sometimes by the equivalent of private security guards. I don't think you want that. It's just 
too dangerous. Martin Schramm is managing editor of the PBS series Avoiding Armageddon, Our Future, Our Choice. He's also author of the companion book to the series by the same title and a former reporter for the Washington Post and Newsday. Marty Schramm, thanks for taking this time with me today. Thank you very much. Time now to follow up on some of the news stories we've been tracking lately. The Bush administration has announced an initiative to reduce harmful emissions from diesel school buses across the country. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, 440,000 public buses make the trip to school every day. And an average American child spends an hour and a half of each day riding a bus. The EPA program will focus on replacing old buses, installing pollution controls on newer ones, and reducing the time that buses spend idling. EPA Administrator Christy Whitman says that's a significant problem. School buses tend to sit outside the schools before dismissal, and, and they'll be idling for an hour or longer. We want to get everyone on the program and train people so that we have reduced the amount of idling by half an hour a day by 2005. The goal is to replace or retrofit every school bus in the country by the year 2010. Officials and environmental health advocates applauded the announcement but said more money is needed to make the commitment a reality. The EPA estimates cleaning up all public school buses will cost over $9 billion. We have a couple of updates from the endangered species front. First, the Environmental Group Defenders of Wildlife has filed an intent to sue the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The group disputes a recent decision by the agency to downgrade the gray wolf from endangered status to the less protective, threatened category in most parts of the country. The Fish and Wildlife Service says the species has recovered from a few hundred animals in 1974 to more than 3,000 today. Wolves in the southwest will get to keep their endangered status. But Defenders of Wildlife claims that's not good enough. Nancy Weiss is with the group. In most parts of the country where the gray wolf used to reside, there are still not yet wolves. Many of those areas still have suitable wolf habitat, and yet the service is declining to venture into those areas as further wolf recovery zones. Under the regulation change, any wolf that naturally migrates to an area such as the Northeast, where there currently are no wolves, would not be considered endangered. The Fish and Wildlife Service has 60 days to reconsider its reclassification of the gray wolf before the environmental group takes its case to court. Meanwhile, court verdicts in Florida have ruled in favor of the endangered manatee. The slow-moving aquatic animals are often injured or killed by boat propellers. Recently, both federal and state judges ruled that setting speed limits for boats is a legal way to protect the manatee. Since the ruling, the Fish and Wildlife Service has posted 500 speed limit signs throughout Florida waterways and issued 600 tickets to speeding voters. Not everyone is happy with the low-speed zones, and Christine Eustace of the Fish and Wildlife Service says the agency recently discovered some vandalism. We did have a case, and these were state signs, eight state signs that were cut down from their postings, and we were really worried people were going to be out there on the water and not see the postings and get hurt. But I think the majority of people really are appreciative and want to protect manatees. Meanwhile, several independent boaters have filed a complaint in court against the speed zones, which they claim are unnecessary to protect the manatee. And finally, concern over SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, has prompted a health-conscious fashion trend. SARS is the pneumonia-like illness that spread from China to many countries of the world. 
Now a doctor in Cleveland has designed silk ties and scarves with special air filtration linings, so they can double as protective masks. These exquisite fashion statements can be yours for just forty dollars each. And that's this week's follow-up on the news from Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation. Major contributors include the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12, and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues. And in support of the NPR President's Council, many of us look forward to spring. But for commentator Mark Spritzer, a high school sophomore in Chicago, each spring brings worries about the baby birds he watches in his backyard. When I was in fourth grade, a pair of mourning doves found an empty flower pot on my back porch and built a nest in it. Other doves have nested in the same pot off and on ever since. I like to watch the baby birds stretch their wings a few feet outside my kitchen window. They take turns walking to the edge of the flower pot, flapping their wings and teetering on the edge, and then settling down again with mom. My parents and I try to predict when the babies will leave the nest. I get to see the babies in the yard for a week or more after they learn to fly, with one of the parents watching from a tree for the first few days. Of all the babies, my favorite was a bird I called Dumpling. She was from the very first batch of doves, and she stayed in the yard all summer. After seeing her around so much, I learned to tell her apart from the other doves by the pattern of spots on her wings. A few years later, she returned with a mate and raised her own babies in the flower pot where she was born. My dad and I have always fed the birds, but now I'm afraid I might have been doing them more harm than good. By attracting birds, I also attract cats and put the baby doves in danger. The first baby that I found dead was Dumpling's sibling, about a week after they had left the nest. When I didn't see him with Dumpling, I looked around. And found feathers under the trees where we hang the bird feeders. A cat had killed him. A few years ago, I actually saw a cat attacking a morning dove in my yard. I ran out and scared the cat away, but the bird was already badly injured. It was missing a lot of feathers, and I think it had a broken wing. There was nothing I could do for it, and it died later that day. My neighbors have outdoor cats that come into my yard to kill birds. Their cats are well fed, but they kill birds anyway because of hunting instinct. Some people put bells on their cats' collars, but the American Bird Conservancy says that bells don't stop cats from killing wildlife. I have nothing against cats. I have three of them. They love to sit on the sun porch and watch the birds through the window. But unless my neighbors keep their cats inside too, they will find their way into my yard. Last year, my dad and I decided not to put food out while the doves were nesting. I always assumed I was helping by hanging feeders in my yard. But my relationship with the birds is not as simple as it seemed when I was younger. I want to be able to watch birds in my yard, but I also want to do what's best for them. I'm still trying to figure out what I should do. Mark Spritzer is a sophomore at Northside Prep High School in Chicago. He produced this commentary as part of Living on Earth's ecological literacy project. For more on the project and to hear other students' work, please visit the Living on Earth website, www.loe.org.
Coming up, a fight over grazing rights on historically Native American land. First, this note on emerging science from Cynthia Graber. Some male animals go to extremes to attract a mate. They may perform an elaborate courtship dance, others sing, and still others attract their partners by the color of their beaks. Scientists have suspected that the brightness of a bird's beak was related to its health. Now, a new study published in the journal Science demonstrates that the brighter the beak, the stronger the male's immune system. Scientists in the UK added chemicals called carotenoids to the water of 10 zebra finches. By doing this, researchers were hoping to stimulate the bird's immune system. Carotenoids are found in many vegetables and have been linked to disease resistance. Scientists then measured the strength of the bird's immune system by injecting them with a protein that causes swelling. Compared to birds who did not receive the supplement, the carotenoid-strengthened birds were better able to fight off the protein. And those same birds also developed brighter red beaks. What's more, in 9 out of 10 cases, female birds preferred these males over the drabber ones. This is the first time scientists have shown strong evidence that bee color is directly related to immune strength. So when females go for the most flashy suitor, they're not being shallow. They're just choosing a healthy mate. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Cynthia Graber. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A good time of day to go looking for wildlife in Africa is that moment when daylight slips into darkness, the moment when hunters and the hunted begin to play their game. Recently on safari in Kruger National Park, I got in a Land Rover for a sunset drive and a chance to catch lions at work. There were plenty of antelope about, the always graceful impala and large herds that seemed to turn as one. The kudu, big wishbone markers on their backsides. Surely, with so much to eat on the hoof, the big cats would make a move. But as the sun slipped away, there were no lions to be seen anywhere. And then, caught by a spotlight low in the grass, I saw them. A pride of eight or ten, looking rather lazy, sprawled about, and not unlike house cats. One lion was busy licking behind the ears of another, who sat with eyes blissfully closed as she enjoyed the massage from the rough tongue. She had to be purring if lions purr, but I wasn't about to get close enough to find out. A couple of younger lions played a bit, but the pride was pretty quiet. Perhaps it was after dinner. We'd miss the hunt, I guess, and perhaps that was a good thing. They wouldn't be thinking about us for dinner in that case. Thanks to Heritage Africa, you can travel to the great wildlife preserves of Africa and get a chance to see lions at home in the bush, perhaps grooming each other, or better yet, catching dinner. Living on Earth is giving away a 15-day trip for two on the ultimate African safari, with visits to several wildlife hotspots, including Kruger and the Serengeti. Please go to our website, www.loe.org, for more details about how to win this 15-day trip to see some of Africa's most spectacular sights. That's loe.org. When European-American settlers first crossed the Great Basin, they encountered the Western Shoshone, a people whose traditional land stretched over two-thirds of what's now the state of Nevada and to California. In 1863, the tribe signed a treaty of, quote, peace and friendship with the U.S. government, but never ceded its land. Today, Western Shoshone people are still scattered over Nevada and elsewhere in the region. They live in cities, towns, and tiny colonies, while tens of millions of acres of what was their territory has been designated as federal land. 
For decades, the tribe fought to regain its territory. After 30 years of court battles, many Western Shoshones say they're now willing to accept government payment for their land. But some continue to resist what they see as the theft of their ancestral homeland. Clay Scott has this report from northern Nevada. The Dan Ranch is a modest collection of low-roofed buildings patched together from scraps of lumber and corrugated tin, sheltered by cottonwood trees where the sage flats meet low mountains. Well, we ought to get out in the barn and think we fix the fence over there. Carrie Dan is in her 60s, her sister Mary about 10 years older. They lead a simple life. A wood stove heats their house and a generator supplies occasional electricity. There's no hot water except for the natural thermal spring in the mountains nearby where, like generations of western Shoshone before them, the two sisters go to soak. Every morning they get up early to see to their animals, white-faced cattle, a few chickens and goats, but their greatest affection is reserved for their horses. Hello, pretty girl. Hi, pretty girl. Carrie Dan offers a bit of hay to a nervous Appaloosa mare, one of several dozen animals prancing and shuffling around a crowded corral. The horses are not used to being confined. They normally graze freely in the mountains on land run by the Bureau of Land Management. Not anymore. The Dans have never had a permit to graze their livestock on federal land, and the BLM has cracked down on what it considers trespassing. Kerry is eager to challenge that notion. I'm not trespassing. As a matter of fact, I would just reverse that and say that the United States is trespassing on western Shoshone land. I'm not going to get a grazing permit from the Bureau of Land Management because this is not their land. This is western Shoshone land. The western Shoshone nation never legally ceded its land to the U.S. government. But in 1962, the Indian Claims Commission, which no longer exists, ruled that the tribe lost possession of its land through gradual encroachment by settlers. That's a ruling Carrie and Mary Dan refused to accept. I know gradual encroachment is not a law. So what they got to stand on? The fact that the United States is mighty and more more powerful than any other nation that they can do as they want? They should show us how they took our land. They should show us the date and the place where it was taken, where our, our people, our leaders, have signed our land over to them. They should first show us that. So far, the federal government has not been swayed by the Dan's arguments. As far as BLM officials are concerned, the land in question is federal land, and the horses are there illegally. And so the BLM has been rounding up the sisters' horses and trucking them back to the Dan Ranch. On this day, the BLM is using helicopters to chase down horses, swooping low to head them off and keep them from hiding in steep-walled mountain gorges. At the BLM encampment, where armed officials in uniform and hired wranglers stroll around an assortment of pickup trucks and trailers, I meet District Chief Helen Hankins. I ask her if all of this is a disproportionate show of muscle, if the BLM is trying to make a statement. I would have to disagree that all these things that uh, we're raising are political. There's a serious concern in these areas because of the substantially high numbers of livestock and the impacts that those livestock being out on a year-round basis cause to both lands and uh, watersheds. Hankins points out the sparse vegetation, erosion, and noxious invasive weeds she says are a direct result of overgrazing. Not only are the Dans trespassing, she says, but they are grazing far more animals than this fragile land can bear. Most of our grazing permittees in this part of Nevada have 
rotated grazing. They use one pasture and then they move to the next and they move to the next. And so the impacts on any one particular piece of land are limited. On this allotment, for the most part, uh, the grazing is everywhere and it's year-round and it's not managed in the way that you know industry commonly does it in this, this part of Nevada. Back at the Dan Ranch, as Carrie and Mary look on impassively, BLM wranglers unload yet another truckload of horses. They prod and coax the frightened animals down a chute into the corral where the horses join the milling bunch already there. The sisters own nearly a thousand horses, far too many to keep at their 800-acre ranch, so ranchers from as far away as California have agreed to take them. This is not the first time the BLM has rounded up the sisters' livestock. Last fall, the agency confiscated over 200 of the Dan's cattle. Ten years ago, they rounded up 250 horses. Both times, the animals were sold at auction, and the money put toward the millions of dollars in fines the government says the sisters owe. Carrie bristles when I ask her if the BLM might have a point, if she feels they might be overgrazing the land. In my mind, the case is not about horses, nor is it about overgrazing. The case has always been about western Shoshone land. They have to address the land issue sooner or later. There have been attempts to address the land issue for over 30 years, and Mary and Carrie have been at the forefront of the fight. But there's also talk of settling the dispute with money. A bill currently working its way through the U.S. Senate would allot a one-time payment of about $20,000 to each of 5,000 or so enrolled members of the Western Shoshone Nation. But that amount is based on land prices in 1872, about 15 cents an acre, while land here today goes for several hundred dollars an acre. Meanwhile, mining companies in the area, working under government leases, are extracting millions of dollars of gold and other minerals from traditional Western Shoshone land. Well, eventually, in the future... At a recent tribal meeting in Elko, Nevada, Kerry and other speakers talked passionately about the need to fight for their homeland. There's another one of those things they use to divide and conquer us. And I would like to see our people unite. Unite and stand strong. Us unite and stand strong. Stand strong for sovereignty of our people. Still, a large majority of tribal members have said they are willing to take the settlement. Many say they are tired of the endless legal wrangling. Many need the money. For people like Betty Robinson, the Dan sisters are fighting an unrealistic battle. We have no land now. If you have a little bit of money, that's something is better than nothing. Our people are tired of listening to maybe let's have land, get all this land back. Well, when they talk about their aboriginal territory, it encompasses about two-thirds of Nevada. Well, you know, and I know as well, that that is asking for the moon, and it will not happen. But even if it's not realistic to expect the return of two-thirds of the state of Nevada, there are other approaches being proposed. Jim Anaya is professor of law at the University of Arizona and an expert on international indigenous rights. It is possible to arrive at solutions here in a practical sense, given the fact that there's uh, so much land out here that's not yet in private hands that could be the basis for a negotiated settlement. Uh, A solution could be developed by which the Western Shoshone people could have a real land base and not just these small little areas uh, around these neighborhoods on the edges of town that the government calls colonies. Another possibility, says Anaya, would be for the Western Shoshone and the BLM to manage the land cooperatively, or for the tribe to manage certain areas and the BLM others. The biggest obstacle to such a solution, he says, is one of attitude. Policymakers 
and by extension, really, the public at large just don't want to look at these issues. Uh, they want to maintain these myths that everything has been settled or that the problems went away a long time ago. And, of course, the other problematic premise is that is age-old premise that Indians can't manage things for themselves. It's based on an attitude of paternalism that has plagued policymakers in this country probably since its founding. That's an attitude that Mary and Carrie Dan say they have felt acutely since the time they first went to school along with non-native children. Speaking in Shoshone, the normally reserved Mary talks about the history of indignities she says she and her people have suffered. What outsiders have difficulty understanding, says Carrie, and what the government has always underestimated, is the strength of their connection to the land, this specific, arid, windswept piece of land where they have spent their entire lives. In our traditional and cultural and spiritual ways, land is not a real estate. Life cannot exist without land. Everything that you and I wear comes from this land in one way or another. And it's, it's important. It's, it's really important. It's life. It's meaning life. Life to all, all things. The Dan's stubborn battle with the U.S. government is one of conflicting and competing interpretations of history, of social and environmental justice, of sovereignty over land. What's at stake, they say, is this, that when their people's connection to the land is broken, something vital will be lost forever. If they think we're going to give up and go away, says Carrie, one foot resting on the rail of a corral, then they're going to have to think again. For Living on Earth, I'm Clay Scott in Crescent Valley, Nevada. This year marks the 200th anniversary of the Lewis and Clark Expeditions. We wondered who lives along the trail now, from the northwest coast to the mouth of the Missouri. One, two, three. Producer Barrett Golding bicycled the entire Lewis and Clark Trail and sent us back a series of audio postcards, like this one from Idaho's Clearwater Forest, where he talked with firefighters getting ready for work. Bob said he's seen two fires start on um, Maple Ridge last night. Flared up. This is Blackfeet 39. We're wildland firefighters from uh, Blackfeet Reservation, Montana. Some, some years we have over 100 dispatches just to Blackfeet. We man the most firefighters in probably the United States. 20 to 30 crews at once. I was up here last year in Idaho, and I think we hit like eight fires in 10 days, and every fire is different, and you have to think about your escape route, your safety zones, and trees falling down, so you can't hear them when they fall. The only time you hear them is when they hit the ground. And then you got to think about the drought conditions, and, the, and when it's dry, it's just like pouring gasoline on a piece of wood and lighting it so fast it'll like ignite. How long have you been doing this? About 18, 19 years. It's in I your just, blood. We just grew up with it, most of our... Smoke. Our, <laughs> our dads mostly all did it, you know, when they were young. It's a kind of a pride thing with the black people. We take pride in trying to be the best firefighters in you know, nation, and probably the world, too. <laughs> yeah. I'd say the world, huh? Yeah. Smoke gets in your blood. <laughs> we ready! She's a hot shot. <laughs> What's that? She's a hot shot. Ask her. What's a hot shot? Uh, hot shot's like, uh, yeah, kind of like the Marines of the firefighters. They're the first ones to go there and the last ones leave mostly. So you see a lot of action and 
It's scary, but you, know, you, you get used to it. You kind of like that rush it gives you. Getting chased by the fire and almost getting hit with a bunch of trees. And Yeah, we had a couple close calls. and you know, We were back burning down this mountain. And then a fire was coming up that creates its own wind. That's what blew up on our face and come up after us. And we were watching it make sure it wouldn't jump the line, and here it did. And it just sounds like a jet taking off, that's how it sounds. Well, we got into our vehicles and we headed out a little bit further down the road and watched it blow up a little bit. And then we were right back in there trying to put it back out because there were houses down below. So we had to watch that. It's, it's fun. It's lots of money. A lot of problem solving. It's hard work. You stay away from your family a long time. You kind of miss them. You write them all so often. And, yeah, I love it. Well, I was giving him get some. Go ahead. Nicole Miso is a chief mountain hotshot, and Eldon Wells is with the Blackfeet 39 Wildland Firefighters. Barrett Golding's portraits of the Lewis and Clark Trail, 200 years later, are part of Hearing Voices, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. For more audio, images, and interviews from the trail, you can go to our website at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week, we celebrate Earth Day by hearing from young people in inner cities across the country about their environment. I live in the part of Camden known as South Camden. Across the street from my home is an abandoned house, one of dozens in my part of town. There are times where I'm sitting on my steps and I see rats from the abandoned house running across the street. The yard next to the house is full of trash and weeds. The Voices of Youth, next time on Living on Earth. And remember that between now and then you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to LOE.org. And while you're there, you can also get a chance to win a safari for two to Africa. That's LOE.org. We leave you this week with sounds of spring migration in the North Dakota wetlands. Lang Elliott and Ted Mack recorded hundreds of canvasback and redhead ducks as they dive for their breakfast. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation in cooperation with Harvard University. You can find us at LOE.org. Our staff includes Maggie Villiger, Anna Solomon Greenbaum, and Jennifer Chu, along with Tom Simon, Jessica Penny, Al Avery, Susan Shepard, Carly Ferguson, and Liz Lempert. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. We had help this week from Catherine Lemke, Jenny Cutrero, James Kerwood, and Nathan Marcy. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. 
Our technical director is Chris Engels. Ingrid Lobet heads our Western Bureau. Eileen Belinsky is our senior editor. And Chris Ballman is the senior producer of Living on Earth. Diane Toomey produced this week's program. I'm Steve Kerwood, executive producer. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation, and Toms of Maine, maker of natural care products and creator of the Rivers Awareness Program to preserve the nation's waterways. Information at participating stores or tomsofmaine.com. This is NPR, National Public Radio.